well, actually, a lot of people have made fun of me this morning. You know, I went to Texas Tech, and it was a, had a big day yesterday. I don't know if you guys saw the, the deal. I keep telling people, I, we were just getting started, and then the clock ended and ran out, you know, and so it really wasn't our fault, and I kept hoping Whedon was not going to come out of the locker room in the second half, but, you know, we, uh, we're still celebrating our OU win, so still a little hungover, if you will, from that, so um, I don't know what happened, so quit making fun of me. It's, uh, it's not my fault. It's part of being a, a, going to Texas Tech. You know, I told everybody, you know, I went to Tech for its academics, not its athletics. It's Harvard on the Plains, right? I mean, that's what, we went there to get smarter, um, now, so it was, uh, it's been a lovely, lovely weekend. Got a lot of family in town this weekend, which has been very fun. So we're excited um, to, uh, to be here with you this morning and to have them here as well. You know, we have kind of wrapped up this series that we've been teaching through about the church that we were called to be, this series that we called Ecclesia, the, the Greek word that means assembly or gathering. And we unpacked our vision for 2012 talked about stewardship and all of these things. We wrapped that up, and, and last week I was out of town, and we had a guest preacher, Chad, who talked about the city rescue mission and sort of what God is doing, in the, doing there. And, and so we're in a really interesting place because, believe it or not, we're only like 13 days away from, from Thanksgiving and, and two weeks away or, or, you know, a little bit, actually two Sundays away from the beginning of Advent. And so we are in a, in a place where we are stepping into this sort of holiday season. And so we're going to be doing a a really amazing thing starting on the 27th of November as we begin Advent. We begin to open up the Advent Conspiracy um, campaign, which which we take part in each year. And you're going to want to learn more about that with us as we talk about what it really means to turn this sort of holiday upside down and recapture it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on the 27th, I'm going to be making two distinct challenges to our community that I want everyone and your families to participate in. So make sure you're here on the 27th to uh, engage in that. It'll be a, a really f- exciting and fun time in the life of our community as we try and think entirely different about the season of Advent. And, uh, and we'll be letting you know a little bit more about that as well. But we're stepping into this sort of season, if you will, of, of Thanksgiving. And, and, and something happened as I was driving down the road a few days ago. Um, I, I heard a DJ on the radio say something that really convicted me. And as part of, of, you know, what you lucky people get is when God moves in my life, when he begins to convict me and challenge me, you end up getting what God is teaching me. And so I was really convicted this week of something, something that I heard as we start thinking about thankfulness and thanksgiving, and I thought that we would, we would talk about it a little, a little bit this morning. I was driving home um, one afternoon, and I usually listen to sports talk radio, but there's only so much OU is awesome that I can handle, right? And then I'm just like... Really? Okay. And so I can handle about an hour and there are 30 minutes. I got to change it and kind of cycle back in and back out. But anyway, I changed over to one of the Christian radio stations that I was driving um, back home. And the DJ in between songs came on and he said this. He said something to the effect of, you know, as we enter into the season of Thanksgiving, I know that sometimes it's very difficult to find things to be thankful for. With times are being tough financially and otherwise for a lot of you, and a lot of us, it's tough to search for things and find things to be faithful for, thankful for. And he said, I pray that you will be able to look this season and find something in your life to be thankful for. And then the music came up and the second song started. And, and, and I started really thinking about this. Now, now, hear me say this. I understand what he was saying. I get it. That we have to look in our lives for the blessings of God. I mean, I understand that. But as I was driving, I started being really convicted because I thought, you know, what a tragedy. What a tragedy when we begin to think about thankfulness as, a, as an action that is tied to specific blessings in our life, that I have to search through my life to find things in these difficult days that my, I might be able to be thankful for, that they're attached to occasions or stuff or things. 
Because the truth is, is that as a follower of Christ, thanksgiving or thankfulness is not an action, it's a state of being. It should be part of who I am as a redeemed person, cleansed and, and radically transformed by Jesus Christ. Thankfulness should be a passion that oozes out of every pore in my body. And not searching through my life to find isolated things, but instead recognizing who God is, what he's done in me, and how that changes the way that I think, I feel, and I see the world. And as I was driving, I was going, God, I so often fall into those categories of saying, okay, so how has God blessed me, or, or, or what am I grateful for, and finding these things along the way, and saying, yes, you've done this, or you've done that, and I am grateful for that, and even though this is hard, I'm still thankful for this, and they balance each other out, and I said, what a mess. Because as a follower of Christ, a transformed, redeemed person that God has radically changed, thanksgiving should be a condition of my heart, and a thankfulness should be an attitude of my heart that that it changes me and my state of being should be rooted in it. And it doesn't mean that everything's going to be great. It just means that thankfulness is a state of being. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to open up the book of Colossians and I want to show you a piece of text. And we may do this over the course of two weeks. So we're going to do the first part today, next, second part next week, maybe. We, uh, we may not. Who knows what the Lord will do between now and then. But we're going we're gonna to approach it that way. And I want to show you this piece of text that I truly believe if we, we really understand what Paul is talking about will change the way that we think about thankfulness, about the season of thanksgiving, and about how we live our very lives. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, I want you to go ahead and find the book of Colossians chapter 3, and uh, we're going to open it up together as we kind of begin this process of, of rethinking thanksgiving, rethinking thanks, thankfulness. And I'm not talking thanksgiving the holiday, I'm talking this sort of season that we kind of enter into. As we rethink that a little bit, and we rethink what it means to be thankful. Colossians chapter 3, if you've got it, we'll start in verse, how about 12? Sounds pretty good. Before we do that, let's take a moment and pray together. Ask God to teach and instruct our heart as uh, we prepare to meet with him this morning. Lord, the truth is, is that we don't understand you completely. You are, you are indefinable. God, you are beyond our understanding and imagination. Lord, we can barely scratch the surface of your majesty and your wonder. And Father, when we encounter you in Scripture, we are encountering your character. We're encountering your love for us and your passion for creation. And this morning, God, I pray that you would reveal a little bit of truth to us. Teach us a little bit more about yourself and who you are and what you're doing in us. That, God, we might understand who we really are in the person of Jesus Christ, what you've done for us through Jesus Christ, that we might understand a new way of seeing our lives and the world around us. Lord, we pray that just for these next few moments, you might teach and instruct our hearts. God, and prepare us to meet with you. Take just a moment right where you sit this morning and just invite God to move in your life today. Just, just invite God to move in your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, even if uh, you don't know them. Just, just whisper something to the Lord in your heart. Just whisper that God would, would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray for that person beside you. God, we, we turn this entire morning over to you. God, we pray that you would teach us through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and instruct us and love us into relationship with you. 
God, we thank you for your son Jesus. It's in his holy and perfect and life-giving name that we pray. Amen. So the book of Colossians is an interesting book. Like a lot of Paul's letters, it was written for a very specific purpose. Colossae was a town that was in the Roman Empire. We don't know a whole lot about it except for the fact that, that it was somewhere in between uh, Laodicea and Ephesus. And Paul probably on one of his missionary journeys passed through there, shared the gospel, planted a church, and the church began to grow. And Paul had this sort of special relationship with the Colossians. And we know from his letter that, that really the letter is designed to to really do two things. One, it proclaims the supremacy of Christ. It talks about how Jesus is above all and through all and in all and in all things, all things hold together because of Jesus Christ. That he is the beginning, the end, the alpha and the omega. He was before time began and will be after time ends. Like Jesus is God. And Paul really lays this out in the first part of the book of Colossians, kind of building a foundation to say, look, all of our theology is really built on the person of Jesus Christ. And then like a lot of Paul's letters, it was written to sort of combat really bad theology. Because oftentimes in these churches, these small churches that are fledgling and new and new believers, kind of bad theology or heresy would have a way of creeping into it. And so Paul's letters were usually written to sort of proclaim the goodness and truth of God and then to correct bad theology. And that's sort of what he's doing in the book of Colossians. He's writing and giving instructions on who Jesus is and how everything holds together because he is God's son and what that really means. And then also instructing the church about what it means to live as a follower of Christ individually, as a community, and as families. And he talks about households and husbands and wives and things. But what he's basically saying is that it's important to understand good theology because good theology saves us from really bad theology. And so... This morning as we think about thankfulness and thanksgiving and we look at these, te- these texts, we're going to kind of take a similar glance, which is trying to have a clear understanding of a theology that sort of reshapes our thinking about who we are and who God says we are and how we then live in the world. So let's take a look at Colossians chapter 3 starting in verse 12. We'll go all the way down through 17 and then maybe cover about half of it this morning, but let's read it all. Colossians 3, chapter 12, this is uh, what what Paul says. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as we really begin to think about thankfulness or thanksgiving or this this state of being, as I mentioned, which is really who we are called to be, to understand thankfulness as a state of being, we have to understand a few things. We have to really come to an understanding of what that means. We have to come to an understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ. Being thankful or living in the state of being a thankfulness does not work if we don't understand who God says that we are. And so Paul, in the first part of this book, says some very specific things that I want you to pay attention to in the first part of those verses in verse 12, where he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy 
and dearly loved. There's a few things I want you to understand about those three, three things. Chosen people, holy, and dearly loved. This is what he calls followers of Christ. Paul says, as followers of Christ, you are God's chosen people, you are holy, and you are dearly loved. Now let me, under, let me tell you a few things about these incredibly important theological truths because in order to truly grasp who you are in Christ, you have to understand these incredibly important things. And the first one is this, you are chosen. Now there's, a, there's kind of a framework for that both in title and in calling. If you've read the Old Testament at all, you'd understand that the title actually means something. In Levi- and actually in Leviticus and kind of all through the early part of the Old Testament, you see God referring to Israel as his chosen people. God chose Abraham. God called Abraham. God formed a covenant with Abraham. And out of Abraham came an entire nation that God called his own. You are my chosen people. God chose them. And through the people of Israel, through Israel, God displayed his majesty and his glory and his love and his discipline for all of creation through Israel. They were the reflection of God's glory. So the title then, as Paul says, you Gentiles are part of God's chosen people is remarkable because basically what he's saying is through Jesus Christ we have been grafted into this title of God's chosen people because up until Jesus Christ the idea of being God's chosen people as a title was referred only to the Jewish people the nation of Israel but through Jesus Christ God says Gentiles those that are non-Jewish are now part of God's chosen family then as followers of Christ, we become the same reflection of God's majesty and God's splendor and God's glory and God's discipline to the whole of creation. <clears throat> so there's an important title that goes with this idea of you are chosen. But, but even more important than the title is the calling. There's a theological truth that runs through Scripture that we all need to pay attention to, and that is this. You did not choose God. God chose you. Scripture paints that picture very clearly, saying God chose you. All right? You will never come to God on your own. We are infinitely, we are sinful and infinitely a mess. But God in all of his holy goodness chose us out of the world. He invites creation to have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And he calls us, chooses us and calls us to enter into a relationship with him. Now you may think, why is this important? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons. Because to really understand the theology behind it, we have to understand our nature. We are a sinful mess. There is nothing good within us. Read scripture. We are sinful and messed up. And we deserve to be separated from God forever. Yet God in all of his amazing, holy, wondrous goodness calls us and chooses us and pulls us into a relationship with him. None of our own doing. You didn't just accidentally stumble upon God, but God loved you enough to draw you into a relationship with him. You are chosen. And this is important because what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, You cannot do it on your own. You would have never come to this place. But God has called you and he chose you. See, the first part of understanding true thankfulness as a state of being is realizing that it is not your doing. But God is moving in you and he chose you. And then Paul says, you are holy. He says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You know, holy is a really interesting word, and we've actually talked about it here before. You can trace this idea of holiness all the way back to the sort of Levitical line of priests in the Old Testament, where where God is inviting and calling the Israelite people to be holy. 
And the Hebrew word for holy is the word kadosh, which really just means to be set apart for a special or significant purpose. When we think about the word holy, we oftentimes think of this sort of moral perfection. So we read it in scripture where scripture says that we're called to be holy. Be holy as I am holy. Live holy. And we think, well, who really can do that? I mean, if if holiness is, is moral perfection, well, we know that we're sinful and we're a mess and I make mistakes. I can't be holy. And so we just sort of gloss over it and move on. But if you understand holiness from a biblical perspective, here's what you know. You've been set apart. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you have a perfect moral life. It means that God has chosen you called you and set you apart to be used by him as the hands and feet of Christ, as a reflection of God to the world. See, we have been called and chosen and set apart. And this is what he's saying to these believers in the Colossian church. He's saying, look, you have been chosen and you have been set apart. You have been designated by God to be used for an incredible purpose that will reflect his glory to the world. Not about perfect moral living, but about a reflection of the infinite, amazing love of God. He says, you are chosen, you are holy, you are set apart. And he says, you are dearly loved. Now, I love this because I think it redefines the, our picture and understanding of God's love a little bit. Because I think a lot of us, without meaning to, have this sort of... Um, mechanical approach to understanding God's love. We know that God is love. Scripture says that God is love. 1 John says God is love. And therefore, if God is love, then he loves us. I mean, I get that. And it sort of turns this love of God into a factual, mechanical part of God's character. When you add that word dearly, or it really translates out of the Greek better to beloved, when you add that idea of being beloved or dearly loved, it adds sort of passion and emotion to the love of God. I mean, God doesn't just love you. He dearly loves you, and he calls you his beloved. This passion, this emotion that your sinful, messed up life, God still says, I love you so deeply and so dearly that I call you my beloved the same way that a husband would look at his wife and call her his beloved. I have that kind of passionate relationship with you who I called and who I set apart. You know, these are incredibly important truths that I think a lot of us take for granted. We, we know that God loves us, but sometimes we forget that God has called us out of the world, has spoken into our lives and said, I have this passion for you that is so deep and so real that I want you to know me and know my son that I call you out of the world, that I drew you to me, as John 6 says, God draws you to himself. And I took you and I set you apart to be used as a reflection of my love to the world. Why? Because you are dearly and desperately loved. There's no mechanical aspect to God's love. It's not some kind of fact that God just does. It is a very makeup of his character. And in order to understand thankfulness as a state of being, I've got to understand who I am in Christ. I have to understand that I am chosen I didn't get here on my own, but God spoke into my life and drew me to him, and then he set me apart, and then he dearly loves me. Even in the midst of my struggle and my mess, God dearly loves me. Now, when we begin to truly understand, and I mean truly understand that truth, those set of truths, it will change the attitude of our heart. Look at these next verses. So we start off with this understanding, and it moves us to a a change of the attitude of our hearts. Right? Let me find my 
text here. Verse, in the last part of verse 12, he says this. He says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. I love this picture, this imagery of, of, of clothing ourselves. When you think about it in kind of a worldly standpoint, what do our clothes do besides just provide warmth or, you know, keep us from being nudies? I mean, it literally says something to the world. And probably in our culture, we place way too much emphasis on this, but, but stay with me and be a little, think a little simpler right now. Our clothes demonstrate something to the world, don't they? If I am walking around in a uniform, it says something to the world. What I wear tells the world things about me, right? We all know that. So we think about that from a practical standpoint. Our clothes are what people see from the outside. And Paul uses these words, this word, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and gentleness. What he's basically saying is, look, as, as people that understand who they are in Jesus Christ, we are called to literally wear, wear this compassion, this kindness, this gentleness and you know what's similar about all those terms is that they're all conditions of the heart. They're all not action. When we begin to live lives that are compassionate and gracious and patient, they, they flow from our very heart. When we understand who we are in Christ, it changes the attitudes of our heart. All of a sudden, I see people in a different light. I see who I am and who God has called me to be. And it changes the way that I want to live and be reflected to the world. And if I clothe myself with compassion and gentleness and faithfulness and all those sort of things, then all of a sudden the world sees my life differently and they recognize for me for who I am in Jesus Christ. Paul says, listen, when you really understand, when you really understand that you have been chosen and set apart and that you are loved by God, it should radically change the attitude of your heart. But there is no way you can understand those biblical truths and remain the same. You cannot understand that you have been chosen and called and set apart and loved by God and still live in this sort of ridiculous, selfish, me-driven manner. Because if you truly understood that, it would change all of this. Because when we begin to understand that we were rescued, saved, set apart, that in our own ability we are going straight for death, Yet the God of the universe rescues us in the person of Jesus Christ, calls us from death to life, sets us apart, and then says, I love you. It changes everything about how we see and feel about ourselves. Changes the attitudes of our heart. Paul says, clothe yourselves with those things. In other words, be intentional about putting them on. Because your sinful nature will not be that sort of first inclination. You your sinful nature will be the first inclination you have. But you've got to be intentional about putting on clothes. You've got to be intentional about saying, God, I want to live differently that reflects what I understand about who I am to the world because of who you called me to be. So it begins with this understanding, and it moves us to this sort of radical change in the attitude of our heart when we truly understand it. And then finally, finally, when we really understand those two things, we understand who we're called and who we are, and it changes the attitude of our heart, it will change the way we live, Right? Look at this verse, verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So he says, listen, followers of Christ, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have. That idea of bearing with each other is really about shouldering burden. It's about saying, listen, partner with each other. 
bear each other's burdens, shoulder each other's load together, right? Care for one another so deeply that their hurts break your heart, that their victories you celebrate. But bear with one another your burdens. Don't walk this thing alone, but, but you want to partner and live in community together. And then he says, forgive each other's grievances that you hold against each other. You know, forgiveness is one of those things that I think is really interesting, because I think we're all okay with forgiveness. Like, we all really want to be forgiving, forgiving people, as long as forgiveness really meets my terms. And my terms are usually this. You tell me you're wrong, you say you're sorry, you show me something different, and then I will forgive you. Now, I'll tell you I'll forgive you way up here, but I really won't forgive you, forgive you, until I see those things, right? You were wrong. You admitted you were wrong. You kind of made your kind of peace with me, you said you're sorry, you're all that, and then you've shown me something different, and now I can forgive you, but I don't truly wash it away, because somehow I'll bring it back up later, right? And anyone that's married knows that this cycle sort of exists, right? I'm sorry, oh, it's okay, I know you're sorry, but you got to kind of show me something different, and then it never really totally goes away, it sneaks back up, you're like, you remember in 96 when, I mean, I don't speak from experience, right? The truth is, is that forgiveness is great if it's on our own terms. But there's a little something at the end of that verse that really messes up life. It says, forgive as what? As the Lord forgave you. Uh Uh-oh. See, all of a sudden, that gets really interesting. Because the truth is, I did nothing to warrant God's forgiveness. Nothing. You have done nothing to deserve the forgiveness of God. Yet God, in his infinite, sacrificial, and unconditional love, forgave you and continues to forgive you every single time that you betray him. Even when you do it standing right in his face, God forgives you. So Paul says, forgive each other's grievances as the Lord forgave you. Now yes, we're sinful and we're human, but the challenge is, if I understand who I really am in Christ that I've been chosen, not on any of my own doing, that God has called me out of the world, that God has set me apart, that he dearly loves me. If I understand that and it changes the attitude of my heart, then how I see your transgression, your sin, your struggle changes. Because how I see what God has done me changes. I no longer have the luxury to just be angry at you. Now I know a lot of us in this room probably have We've got a lot of issues with this verse. We really struggle with it because there are relationships in our life that are jacked up. We've got a mom we haven't talked to in 17 years and a son we haven't seen and, a, and, a, and a, you know, an aunt that did this or a dad that did this. And, and Trev, you don't understand what they did. And you're right, I don't. But I will tell you on some level, you've got to wrestle with this verse. Because your lack of and your inability to forgive them most likely stems from your inability to understand who you really are in Christ. Because when we begin to truly understand who we are and what God has done for us, it changes the way that we see the world. And thankfulness and gratitude begin to ooze out of our lives in a way that we can't control. Changes our attitudes of our heart and it changes the way that we live. And then finally, as we wrap this up, Paul says this. And then we'll finish this next part next week. He says this in verse 14, over all of these virtues, right, compassion and humility and gentleness and forgiveness and all those things, over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. He basically says, look, in all this stuff, do it in love. 
You can't just forgive someone and not love them. And not, you don't have to love them like huggy, you know, touchy-feely love, but you can love them the same way that Christ has dearly loved you. He's not proud of everything that you've done. He's not happy with all of your actions, but he loves you with a deep, passionate love. And when you begin to put on love and, and all of these things, it binds them together in unity because it's how God sees you and it's how God sees me. And as I think about thankfulness and I think about this guy's comments on the radio, I was just so struck because the truth is, is that we do spend so many, much of our time wrestling with the struggles and trying to identify the blessings within it. You know, God, I lost my job, but you did do these things, and, and, and I, I need to look for that, and I know I should be grateful for these things, God, but I'm really struggling here. And thankfulness becomes a, something we have to pick and choose and identify small things. But if we really understood the incredible nature behind what God did for us, the calling and the rescuing and the setting of the part and the loving, it would change the way our hearts think, and it would change the way that we see and live in the world. And thankfulness would be something that would literally be a state of being and not an action. It would just be who I am. That I'd be able to identify and see God in every small, single moment and things in my life, every breath that I draw. The, the very sunshine would radiate with God's glory and God's splendor. And I'll tell you what, if you are longing, and you are longing for more relational and lo- relationally, more materially, more financially, more whatever, if you are constantly wanting more, I can promise you it's because you have yet to understand who you really are in Christ. Because when you do, it changes everything. You know, this table that we're going to share in today is the perfect picture of God's extravagant, amazing love. This redemptive, altering, life-changing love. The demonstration that God so loved us that he poured his life of his son out for us. And as we prepare our hearts to go and meet with the Lord at this table today, I want to take a look at this video as a way of just reminding ourselves that sometimes we need to stop and see God in those moments, in every category moment in our life. That God is at work and moving all around us. And then we're going to worship and share in this table together this morning. Let's take a look at this. It's so bright out I can't feel a thing Who we are, we are now Stand the Lord. Whoa. 